Meet the new Cold War, same as the old one. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The Cold War ended. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a clear winner and a clear loser. We won, they lost. Now the unthinkable is happening right before our eyes. It's starting again. As a returning guest says, meet the new Cold War, same as the old one. And as we speak, members of Congress from both sides of the aisle are rushing to inject another bunch of billions into the already bloated military budget of nearly $800 billion for this fiscal year. Our guest today, former Air Force Lieutenant Colonel William Astori, asks, What the hell happened? Damn it, we won the Cold War three decades ago. Decisively so. How then could we have allowed a new one to emerge? Why would any sane nation want to refight a war that it already won at enormous cost? Who in their right mind would want to hit the replay button on such a costly, potentially cataclysmic strategic paradigm as deterrence through mad or mutually assured destruction? End of quote. Yet, here we are. William Astori, thank you so much for being back with us and keeping democracy alive. Thanks a lot for having me, Bert. William Astori is a retired lieutenant colonel with the U.S. Air Force and professor of history, a senior fellow at the Eisenhower Media Network, an organization of critical veteran military and national security professionals. And his personal blog is Bracing Views. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And one can almost picture the military-industrial-congressional complex makers and shakers beside themselves that in 2022, Ukraine has presented such a grand opportunity for them. It does amaze me that a peaceful settlement through diplomacy is right there in front of us. But that possibility of NATO not expanding into Ukraine, well, it's just so inconvenient. When the Soviet Union collapsed over 30 years ago, as you say, we could now dream of peace dividends, of America becoming a normal country in normal times. What do you think it is about the cherished insistence on American exceptionalism that keeps us from becoming what you say a normal country in normal times might be? I think we as a country, or at least our leadership, just decided on a different dream. Uh, you know, it was Gene Kirkpatrick, uh, who was one of the original neocons under Ronald Reagan, yeah. who said that uh, we could finally become a normal country in, in normal times and foreign affairs. But I think what happened was we were infected by victory disease, so to speak. You know, we had, we had won the Cold War. Uh, quite unexpectedly, uh, our intelligence agencies truly let us down. Uh, you know, I remember when I was in the Air Force in the 1980s, we figured the Soviet Union would be a threat for the next 50 years. Uh, and then five years later, the Soviet Union was collapsing. 
Amazing. Uh, and so, and so, um, you know, instead of instead of saying, "Hey, it, it really is time for us to cash in our peace dividends to downsize the Pentagon to save money to invest domestically," what we decided instead was uh, global dominance, and and that was reflected in my, you know, the Air Force's vision, which is uh, global global reach, uh, global power, uh, and what we did what we did, Bert, as you as you know. Is, is we basically split the world up uh, into global domains for the United States. So we have all these commands, whether it be, you know, Indo-Pacific Command, you know, Central Command, uh, uh, North, Northern Command, um, Southern Command. And now we have, oh, it used to be Space Command. Now under President Trump, it's a whole new Space Force uh, what the United States decided to do, again, our leadership decided to do, the military industrial congressional complex decided mm-hmm. that this was a time to dominate the world uh, in the name of American exceptionalism because we are the indispensable nation. And that hubris uh, is what led to Iraq and Afghanistan and all the other disasters that we've witnessed over the last uh, 20 to 30 years. It amazes me that that phrase, America as the indispensable nation. If you have any knowledge of history, as I know you do, uh, you know, so many countries, so many imperial nations have thought of themselves as indispensable nations, bringing civilization to the savages in North America, bringing civilization to the uh, people of Africa. I'm a little bit surprised that the notion of indispensable nation sells now. They must have done focus groups on the use of that word. Your thoughts? I know I took a point. Uh, You you, you look at if history teaches us one thing, it's that empires come and go. Yes. Uh, You know, whether it be whether it be the Roman Empire or the the Habsburg Empire or or the, the, the various empires that, that Germany has had, you know, the first Reich, the, yeah. the, the second Reich under the Kaiser, yeah. and then, of course, the, the, the most infamous of all, the third Reich under Hitler, right. which was supposed to last a thousand years, uh, and which lasted 12 years. Uh, so we should know from history that there is no such thing as, as an indispensable <laughs> nation. Uh, and yet, you know, our, our own uh, hubristic pride yeah. says that, you know, that, that we are. Uh, and the idea of us being just uh, one of many just seems uh, it, it seems to uh, uh, instill horror in a lot of people that, of course, we are the dominant nation. Of course, we are better than everybody else. I, you know, as as Rocky said to Bullwinkle so long ago, that trick never works. Well, Ukraine is this, you know, awfully convenient uh, trigger now for upping military spending and uh, and whipping up a, a martial spirit. What do you think the U.S. should do about the Ukraine situation? What specific policies or actions should America pursue? What about standing firm to protect democracy in Ukraine? Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, is, is, is there, you know, is there a democracy in, in Ukraine? What kind of government are we supporting? Right. I mean, we, we know that you know, we know that Victoria Newland and company under Barack Obama got involved in 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 basically a soft coup uh, in in Ukraine. 
Ukrainian forces, at least some of them anyway, appear to resemble neo-Nazis yes. in, in their uh, political preferences. So, so what kind of government are we really propping up in Ukraine? Uh, in, in my opinion, when you look at you look at a globe. I have my little globe in front of me. Um, you know, we we you know, Ukraine and Russia is very far away from us. Uh, it's winter time there. Hmm. Uh, the the last thing you ever want to get involved is, is any kind of winter conflict uh, hmm. in, in in Russia. If history's taught us one thing, really, uh, and 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 I think it's one of these situations where. Uh, the Russian people and Ukrainian people will solve this if we just get out of the way uh, and stop meddling and and stop sending weaponry uh, to to Ukraine, uh, which is basically kind of like an, an accelerant to a fire. Uh, you know, this is this is something that is not wise policy at, at all. Oh, but so many people, uh, uh, it seems to me, you know, without I always think it's good to think with history. And without doing that, people say, well, we got to stand up to him. We got to look tough. <laughs> what happens if we don't? Right, right. Uh, I mean, uh, looking, looking tough is, 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 uh, uh, is, is more than foolhardy uh, if it leads to uh, you know, some kind of general war that, that could, you just never know, escalate right. to nuclear weapons because you know the russia has the largest arsenal nuclear arsenal in the world as far as number of weapons and and we're right behind them so you know getting involved in any kind of a of a shooting war uh in that area of the world is just is it would be incredibly risky uh and and dangerous uh you know not just to ourselves but to, to the rest of the world and there were some real close calls back in that most recent Cold War, some really close calls. It was pretty scary, of course. People of my age remember the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. It was uh, some scary stuff. And and we've had some situations since then that are more than a little bit scary. I mean, I remember just not that long ago when North Korea seemed to be really threatening us. And, uh, you know, if people could think about that, we, we did avoid war in all those situations. I wonder... If, if we can do that again. Now, I was one of the millions of Americans, patriotic Americans, who took to the streets in what I considered to be support of our boys in Vietnam, demanding they come home from that war as whole, intact humans. And in the early 80s, millions demonstrated for a nuclear freeze. I, maybe that wasn't exciting enough. Politics is, as you know, so much theater. And that grade B uh, actor Ronald Reagan came into the White House riding high in the saddle. So here's the situation. Vietnam was over. We lost. The Pentagon scouted around and saw Central America as a possible new playground. But public protests ruined their game. They didn't do it. What about the appeal of Reagan's morning in America? What about the allure of Reagan as it relates to where we are today and in terms of avoidance of war right right i i think i think that's absolutely right i i think what we need is a new definition for what what mourning in america would would really mean uh and what i mean by that is mm. you know I, I go back to you know you mentioned the cuban missile crisis in, in 1962 and and uh john f kennedy and, and i go back to john f kennedy's uh peace speech that he gave in the summer of uh, 1963 yes where, where he talked you know 
you know, he talked about the, the, the promise of peace, the possibility of peace uh, with, with the Soviet Union and, and with the world. Uh, and I, you know, I was trying, I was trying to think today, Bert, when, when was the last time an American president gave a speech dedicated to peace? And I think it may have been Kennedy in 1963. I mean, that's now 58, that's almost 60 years ago. Uh, and so I, I think, I think we need to redefine what morning in America really means. Uh, I mean, you remember the Reagan commercial, of course, with Morning in America. It was all, you know, sunrises and, right. and you know, smiling children and happiness and all that. And so, and flags waving and, you know, nothing wrong with that. Uh, but but Morning in America should mean, I think, in one word, it should mean peace. It should mean in America as, as much as possible at peace with the world uh, and returning to a... A, a peacetime setting uh, establishment for for the military, because as, as you know, uh, in in American history, we 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 used to demobilize after wars. Mm, sure. We demobilized after World War One. We demobilized after World War Two. But then came the Cold War and the Iron Curtain and all that. And then all of a sudden, we had to be on a permanent wartime footing. Well, that was supposed to end with the end of the Soviet Union, but it didn't. So, so to me, mourning in America would mean a return to the notion that the United States is at peace and we can put our military on a peacetime footing. We can shrink it. We can save money. Uh, and we can handle all of the problems that we have domestically with our economy. Mm. Because when you ask people what worries them, the biggest concern people have it's not Ukraine. <laughs> it's it's the economy. It's paying their bills and the mortgage and the rent and the food and the gas bill and everything else. That's what's on people's minds. Yeah, I, you know, it, it, the way they uh, certain interests uh, uh, posit national security. National security. What does that really mean? And this entire period. Uh, where we didn't demobilize, has been to uh, define national security as more and more and more weapons and intervening all over the world. I don't think it's worked particularly well, but the uh, weapons contractors would disagree. I mean, there's so much money to be made and uh, the power. And, and you talk about peace, and people who, who call for peace are often denigrated, you know, you're, it used to be you're just a, a peacenik, a you know, a kook, whatever. But it, it, is it? It is entirely realistic, I believe, for us to have a Department of Peace, as former candidate Dennis Kucinich called for. How are such ideas, like a Department of Peace, how how is that dealt with in Washington these days? All right. Well, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, you know, I, I, I would I would come back to if I can just interject that uh, uh, allegedly allegedly America is a Judeo Christian nation <laughs> founded on Christian values, so to speak. Although of course, you know, we're not supposed to have any one national religion. But but just saying that, you know, looking at the Bible, I was raised Catholic, and in the Christ Beatitudes, he talks about you know, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be the children of God. 
and I think we need to tap into that spirit. You know, it, it can be decoupled from from Christianity, obviously, but the idea of peace as being something admirable uh, and, and something holy uh, is something that I think we need to promote again. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, uh, in Washington, D.C., in the Beltway, mm-hmm. you know, peace is seen as a threat. It's a threat to their bottom line. It's a threat to their jobs and positions. Uh, it's a threat if you're uh, in Boeing and Raytheon right. and Lockheed Martin and some of these other huge military contractors that, that make, you know, untold billions of dollars every year of building all kinds of, of weaponry. Uh, so so that said, though, uh, you know, we, we need we, we call it a paradigm shift, call it a revolution in values. Uh, call it a, a, an awakening. Uh, we we need we need a a a peace movement uh, mm. that 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 truly, you know, that has the courage of its convictions and the support of of the American people. Uh, and and I know say, saying that is uh, it's easy easy it's easy to say it, but as as you know from Vietnam War experience, it's it's very difficult to to do it. Uh, but. Uh, but, you know, what's interesting to me is that uh, in a very strange way, I, I, I have I, I have absolutely no uh, interest in Donald Trump. I don't support Trump. But 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 Trump, when he ran as a candidate in 2015 and 16, tapped into uh, some of this uh, anti-war spirit yes. in America. Yes. You know, he 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 attacked the Iraq and Afghan wars. He, he called them folly and a waste. Uh, and he attacked the generals as well, you'll recall. That's right. You know, basically he was saying that, you know, I know more than the generals, right. he said. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh-huh. and he attacked their their ability. Uh, and I give him credit for doing that. And his message resonated with with ordinary Americans. It's one of the big reasons why he was elected in, in 2016. Now, once he became president, yeah, well. he gave the Pentagon all the money it wanted and he hired generals and so on and so forth. But that message in in the mouth of a different candidate who's able to reach people uh, is part of what we need to effect this this change that we're talking about. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're just trying to keep the world alive, actually, today. Our guest is uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel uh, and Professor of History William Astori talking about uh, meeting the new Cold War, same as the old war. And I do think a couple of things about what we were just talking about. If, if you were to, you know, go to Capitol Hill, talk to members of Congress, and especially in the Senate, uh, if you talk about Department of Peace or something like that, people, they, 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 the senators in particular, Democrat and Republican, would just run away as fast as they can. I think because they think it's political suicide to talk about peace. But as you say... And people forget this, that this is a real thing, that Trump did say these things and people liked it. And I do find it interesting and hope to talk about it next week on this show uh, with a, uh, a Republican leader about the split in the Republican Party between, you know, the old fashioned neocons and the Rand Paul's, for example, people who want a, a different foreign policy. And Rand Paul, I think, is popular in his state. I disagree with him on everything except that. 
And I, what, what, how can the, the, the political leaders keep missing? Maybe it's because people aren't making noise in the streets. Well, what, what happened to making noise in the streets? And, and, and what, I think there are a number of reasons why that isn't happening anymore. Your thoughts on that and how effective it oh, is. Oh, right. Well, well the, military, the military learned from the Vietnam War to get rid of the draft. Right. Yes. Uh, we, we went with all the volunteer forces and, and that's that's what I was. I was a volunteer. I, I served in the Air Force for 20 years until I retired. Uh, but, you know, when you when you get rid of the draft, uh, a lot of the opposition, not all of it, but but a lot of the opposition yes. to the Vietnam War was was uh, was neutralized yeah. because of that. And 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 the military realizes that. So 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 that's one reason. Uh, another reason, of course, is just you know, uh, the mainstream media. Yes. Uh, the mainstream media is basically boosting war. Uh, you, you rarely do you ever see any anti-war voices on the mainstream media. I mean, they use a lot of retired colonels and generals yeah. and, uh, you know, ex-CIA officials and so on. Uh, and, you know, someone who, who actually has the guts to speak out against war, as you know, uh, like Phil Donahue did with the Iraq war. Well, they took his show away from him on MSNBC. Uh, you know, MSNBC hired Jesse Ventura uh, and then discovered he was against the Iraq war. Yeah. Uh, they basically gave him, you know, eight, nine million dollars to keep his mouth shut and never gave him a show. <laughs> um, so it's, I didn't it's know very that. difficult. Yeah, no, it's no, absolutely true. And then, you know, poor Ashley Banfield, she was a reporter who covered uh, the Iraq war. She came back and gave a speech where she was critical of media coverage of 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 the war she said that you know you didn't see the suffering on the other side right. you didn't see where all our weapons landed you didn't see uh you know tens of thousands of dead iraqis and so on and so forth and she found herself demoted uh within within her uh mm. news branch uh, for speaking the truth about the cost of war so so that's another reason you know we we're kept we're kept largely uninformed or misinformed about what war is all about, mm. and of course the you know the mainstream media they don't conspire. That's for I mean it's just totally unrealistic for you know all the reporters to agree on everything, but they are about making money. They're about keeping their advertisers happy, and I think that that's what they're doing thus far. And what you were talking about reminds me of in two thousand three. When the you know war on Iraq started, many of us were expecting. Well, of course, you know there's going to be a peace movement. People are going to uh, stand up and and speak out against this rush to war. I was I was shocked at that. But, but what are your thoughts about you know that rush to war? What the uh, factors involved were there, and why why there was no real voices against it? Yeah, uh, in in 2003, I, I think I think there were. Uh, you know, I, I think there were some voices. There, there were a lot of voices urging uh, restraint. I mean, there were even voices within uh, the military, you know, saying that saying that the, that the plans of, you know, Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld were, were inadequate. I, I think it was General uh, Shinseki uh, who said, you know, who testified to Congress and said before the war, uh, you know, it's like you don't have you don't have enough men. You don't have enough troops to 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 do what you're trying to do here um yes you know you can invade you can topple saddam hussein right um but there's going to be 
you know, at, you know what, what then, right? You're going to destabilize the country. You're going to have a mess on your hands. Uh, and you don't have enough troops to accomplish any kind of stability operations. And, of course, you know, General Shinseki was proved uh, right about mm-hmm. that. Uh, but he was, he, was, he was basically forced into retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think there were people who spoke out. Uh, but, you know, as you know, uh, uh, you know, Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld and, and the rest of them, uh, you know, because of because of the revenge factor from the 9-11 attacks, even though, of course, Iraq had nothing, nothing to do right. with 9-11. Uh, and because of their again, their their own hubris, the the uh, the desire to overthrow Saddam Hussein and finish, you know, unfinished business from mm. Desert Seal, Desert Storm in 1991 uh, and. And just the desire, as as I said, you know, to to remake the Middle East. They they really yes. thought that, you know, what did they say? What was the saying then? It was like something like, um, you know, I don't remember. Uh, they 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 wanted they wanted to move on, not just not just end with Baghdad, but but they wanted to move on to Tehran in in Iran, and you know, the, all of this was going to be the 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 remaking of the right. middle east in 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 america's image mm. and it, it was just an utter disaster of course it was there's so many examples of that you know remaking a, a certain area in our image it it never it never works well when regular listeners okay are probably sick of my constant referral to the first world war well too bad it's going to happen again only a trigger was needed after each belligerent Each belligerent country had for many, many years been tremendously beefing up their military in anticipation, in preparedness, whatever you want to call it. Then came, of course, that trigger. Now, when you were working some 2,000 feet under solid granite in Colorado, you had thoughts about—I would never do that. (laughs) Sorry. You had thoughts about what would come if the agency for which you worked, NORAD, actually launched you lived every day at the nuclear trigger what scenario did you envision and was it pure paranoid fantasy do you think oh not at all yeah um you know we we uh we we did we did plan uh to fight uh, a nuclear war uh it wasn't it wasn't fantasy for us uh in fact it, it still isn't today i mean we have we have strategic command uh, um, I, I know um, I can't remember the general in charge of Stratcom now, but but he has certainly spoken out in provocative ways about about you know winning a nuclear war. Uh, you know there is there's obviously you know remembering that old movie uh, with Matthew Broderick uh, War Games. There is yes, no way yes. to win a nuclear war. Uh, the only way you win a nuclear war is by not fighting one. Yes, not uh, to play. And, and, and you know what we need to do. Uh, which is which is obvious to me and obvious to most people, I think, is to work toward nuclear disarmament. Uh, and and it, it's shameful. It's shameful that that, uh, you know, Reagan, Reagan, tried, Reagan and Gorbachev tried to work to nuclear disarmament. True. Uh, Barack Obama, uh, Barack Obama supposedly work, was going to work to nuclear disarmament. Uh, but all of that has gone by the wayside uh, as we now plan to. The so-called modernize our nuclear forces uh, over the next 30 years at a cost of somewhere around 1.7 trillion dollars 
Uh, and yes, I, I did say trillion. <laughs> it, it's it's just I, I, it's it's a form of madness. It is. Um, and and uh, uh, I can tell you, I you know as I as I mentioned in my article for Tom Dispatch. Yes. Uh, I was a I was a young lieutenant uh, sitting in the missile warning center, and we would run we occasionally would run. Uh, scenario tapes, you know, simulating a mm. a Soviet nuclear strike against the United States, and and I was in the missile warning center one day, and and the scenario tape ran, and you could see the you know the missile tracks going over the North Pole, you know, being launching from the Soviet Union over the North Pole, and the missile tracks terminating at at cities in the United States. Right. Uh, and and it you know it was nothing nothing. You know, nothing like uh, some some fancy sci-fi movie with great special effects. It was just a it was just a monochrome screen with Kansas City and and, uh, you know, Pittsburgh and, and Philadelphia or what have you. Uh, but just seeing those cities being struck by, you know, from these missile tracks of in this from this scenario tape uh, in about 1987 was enough for me to say this would this would just be utter madness if 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 this if we ever allowed uh, this to happen uh and and i think you know more than anything else uh we need to be working toward a a nuclear weapons free world we should we the united states should be taking the leadership on that but yet we're actually doing the very opposite mm. yeah modernizing and, and when you talk about madness uh, there are so many occasions where Madness has become policy. Once again, World War One. I. I mean, that solved nothing. And it was absolute madness. And it was just beyond belief horrible. But uh, you, you write and talk about Barack Obama and, and the opportunities there. You write in your article in Tom Dispatch, excuse me, but where has the idea of nuclear disarmament gone? A scant 15 years ago, old Cold War hands like Henry Kissinger, George Schultz, and Sam Nunn, these are not peace creeps for sure, joined by our hope and change president, Barack Obama, promoted the end of nuclear terror through the actual elimination of nuclear weapons. These guys talked about it. So what happened? You point to 2010 as a pivotal uh, point. Do tell. Yeah, um, it was a it was a deal as as I understand it, you know, it was a deal that um, that uh, Obama struck, uh, <laughs> some kind of uh, you know compromise where he where he basically like, well, he would support um, the building at least in theory he would support this whole idea of nuclear modernization uh, to gain votes in the Senate uh, for the re ratification of the START treaty with, with Russia. That's the Strategic Arm Reductions Treaty. Uh, so he did it for votes in the Senate. He basically reneged on the idea of nuclear disarmament uh, so that he could get some precious votes of, of senators in Wyoming and mm. North Dakota and Minnesota mm -hmm. and Montana. Uh, and in these these states like Montana, Wyoming, and North Dakota, they they have nuclear missiles right. and air force bases, um, and for them, sadly, nuclear modern nuclear so-called nuclear modernization for them means money right. and jobs. Right. 
and and they don't you know that's what they care about they don't care about the fact that we're wasting you know billions and even trillions of dollars as long as it creates jobs in you know minot north dakota and fe warren air force base in wyoming that's that is what it's about and you know people say well the New Deal didn't really work. What really worked was World War II. Well, that's because a lot of money was spent. That's what it was. It didn't matter what they were building, what widgets were being produced. It was the jobs that were created. And I live near the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, which does a heck of a good job repairing uh, and uh, fixing up uh, nuclear submarines, nuclear-powered subs. And there has right. been talk over the years of uh, uh, full-use uh, of the shipyard, you don't want to say conversion particularly, but they could make other things. And I'm sure in in uh, Wyoming and places like that, it isn't brought up. But maybe we could use some, you know, new uh, super efficient uh, railroad cars, for example, bridge components, uh, lots of things. But how come? I mean, it's about jobs. And down south, you know, they're they're all about jobs too at the military bases there. You don't dare talk about, uh, you know, ending nuclear modernization and stuff like that. What about? Is there nobody putting forth this idea? And why the heck is Congress so afraid to talk about that? Yeah, it's good. It's a good point. You know, we have we have we have Keynesianism, but it's military Keynesianism, <laughs> exactly. right? It's, it's yes. basically, you know, deficit spending, but but it's all on weaponry. Uh, well, I think, Bert, as you know, so many we've offshored so many jobs. You know, I, I come I come from Brockton, Massachusetts. Yeah. Brockton's Brockton's known as um, as as it was a, it was a shoe town. Yes, and it had all these factories for making shoes. Yep, uh, and all those jobs are pretty much all of them are, are now gone. Oh yeah, uh, and you can you can talk about that for so many uh, small cities across the United States. Their their, their former manufacturing base sure. has been sent overseas, uh, and and what remains, unfortunately, uh, is is weaponry, uh, because you know because of the secrecy and classification and so on and so forth, you know we can't we can't have our F thirty fives made in China. Um, so, you know, so we, so we, so the military jobs are, are still here. Uh, and, and to, you know, obviously what we need to do is just as you say, you know, there are other things we could make, yes. you know, beside nuclear bombers and, and missiles. Uh, and that's exactly what we need to do. Uh, but it's so difficult to overcome uh, the military industrial complex that, that Ike, President Eisenhower yes. warned us about 60 years ago. Well, it's so popular. It's such, a, you know, you don't want to look like you're standing up against the military. We're clearly a, a military-centric nation, and the world knows that, and, and it's like, it's hard to, to buck that trend. It's like, that's our identity. Is that for good? I don't think so. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is uh, William Astori, retired lieutenant colonel with the United States Air Force and professor of history, senior fellow at the Eisenhower Media Network. And we're talking about an article, uh, discussing an article he did on Tom Dispatch, which I highly recommend to people. Meet the new Cold War, same as the old one. And, you know, Bert, you know, Bert if I could say something. Please do. Um, the, 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 very, the very name of your show, Keeping Democracy Alive, 
is is exactly what it's all about with respect because we are not keeping our democracy alive when we feed so much money and and prestige and power to to the military industrial complex uh and i think that's that i think that really is the bottom line you know besides obviously uh preventing world war uh is that is that as as you say we we need to we need to chart a a new or or cut a new path for ourselves uh because the the more money we the more money we funnel to the military the more nuclear weapons that we we buy the more power that the generals get the the obviously the less of a democracy that we have the more of a militaristic state that we have the more of a surveillance state yes you know that 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 we have uh you know we're 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 you know maybe maybe in some small way we we used to be a little bit of an exceptional nation but that exceptionalism if it ever existed is gone uh and if we want to keep democracy alive uh we we need to we we need to chart a new path boy it's going to take a lot of heavy lifting but hey we've done it before lord knows you know we didn't beat the nazis by sitting back and knowing nothing we got involved there and so many other situations and i do find it interesting and perhaps uh, ironic that you know, since 1954, uh, Vietnam had one war or another. First, it was against the French, and then it was against the Americans. And guess what? We're doing business with them now. You talk about shoes made in Brockton. They're, a lot of them are made in Vietnam. It's amazing. And oh, I know. We could have done business with them years ago, but nobody was talking about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember. I mean, speak, speaking of that, I remember... My wife and I went in the market for a bed a few years ago, uh-huh, right. uh, and we eventually found, we eventually found one made in the USA. But but I was go- going to the furniture store, and it's like th- these beds were made in Vietnam. Absolutely, absolutely, so much of it. And hey, you know they need jobs too. Lord knows. And you say you are stunned by the resurgence of a 21st century version of anti-communist hysteria. End of quote. I wonder how long. That prospect has been carried, hopefully, by political interests and powers. This anti-communist hysteria, which we, which he, most of us say, oh, that was you know horrible time in the early 1950s, and yet, you know, I, again, I ask, how long do you think that prospect of new anti-communist hysteria has been carried with hope? I'm not. I'm not even sure we know what communism is anymore. Right? <laughs> it's true. I mean, I mean. You know, there there used to be there used to be a you know at least a, a small American Communist Party. Yes. Um, you know, there used to be you know some kind of small communist movement that that pretty much no longer exists. Right. Uh, and then you look at countries like Russia and China. I mean, are they really communist? I mean, they, they both in their own way are practicing a sort of authoritarian form of capitalism almost um so so i mean having some fear of 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 communism is you know i i could see i could see some validity to it in 1950 perhaps but (laughs) you know not 70 years later you know communism is is not a a threat uh i mean there's you know who 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 among us you know when when do you ever hear uh anyone uh, in the United States, talk about any political candidate, talk about communism 
in any sort of serious right. way. They they don't. Well, it, this it, is there is no this, there is no radical left. No, you're right. I mean, what's considered far left now is pretty much where Eisenhower was, and he was a Republican, a very successful general. You know, uh, it, it amazed me. So it, I don't know. I mean, there's like a new hysteria. It's it's a version of anti-communist hysteria. Uh, it's not. I don't think they call it. You know, anti-communist. But what what about this uh, hysteria that seems to be uh, in the air? Yeah. Um. I mean. Yeah. I think so much of it. So much of it is is driven by just a deep sense of unease about the path forward for for our country yes i mean again i i mean some of it i think is related to the pandemic yes uh, and and covid uh i mean we're, we're supposed to distrust our neighbor if our neighbor is not wearing a mask and if our neighbor is is unvaccinated uh somehow that neighbor has now become an enemy uh you know i, I mean i i see it i see the hysteria as as you know i Personally, um, I'm, I'm not afraid of China. I see no reason to be hysterical about China because of its military activities. Right. Certainly not Russia. You know, both those countries are considerably weaker than, than the United States uh, militarily. Our, our problems are domestic problems. Uh, again, I come back to Americans being concerned about bread and butter issues, yes. lunch pail issues. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's why we're so uneasy. Uh, and, and what I would like to see is to get back to what you were saying about, you know, Rand Paul, for example, you know, I see a lot of common ground, or at least a potential for common ground between the left and elements of the right. Absolutely. In the sense of, in the sense of the anti-war critique, um, you know, one of the few people who's actually speaking out against military interventionism is, 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 uh, in Ukraine is Tucker Carlson. On Fox News, Whoa. Uh, and you know, I again, I I think Tucker Carlson's kind of a tool, <laughs> but but on this issue, uh, he's been one of the few people who's actually used his public platform to question, you know, sending you know sending troops and more guns uh, to to Ukraine. So bully for him for doing uh -oh. that. Interesting. Well, I never thought I'd want to watch his stuff, but now maybe I do, and it is. Uh, interesting how, uh, you know, real conservatism, I think, and we need to uh, keep exploring this as time goes on. Uh, the Some of the people on, on the right are, you know, more, more united with the traditional, you know, peace movement in the United because it's in our interest. It's in our interest to move toward peace. And you mentioned China. They are described as a rival. No doubt it's true. They're making lots of stuff. Uh, they're they are strong and militaristic, are they not? I mean, is a military buildup not the best way to deal with China? I mean, is there something called threat inflation at work here? How can we deal with? I China? think so. Yeah, I you know I, I think when, when you look at history, uh, China China has historically been a a regional power, a land power. Uh, China's never been a a a a major naval power. Only briefly did they have some naval expeditions under, I think, Admiral, I think it was Zheng Ha, I think. And this is going back 600 years, though. I mean, China's a, a land power. Their, their focus is on Asia. Uh, although they are branching out now, 
but they're doing it, I think, a smart way. They're doing it more economically, where you know, through the power of their economy and and, and all the money they're making on trade. Uh, I think I think we could learn something from China, actually. So so I, I don't uh-huh. see, you know, when when you look at when you look at the the globe, uh, it you want to take a look at a global power. That's that's us, the United States. We're the ones who have 800 military bases spread around the world. We're the ones who have separated the world up into all these different commands right. where we have four star generals and admirals in, mm. in charge of them. And China hasn't done that. So I think what you know what our military needs, as you know, Bert, is it always needs a threat. Yes. Right. <laughs> uh, and if it's not Ukraine today, it's it's Iran yesterday. It's Iraq 20 years ago, and it's China tomorrow. Uh, and and I think I think that's what we need to to worry about uh, is is this is not China as a threat, but the Pentagon using China as threat inflation. Oh yeah, it works so well. They just they they have the stage you know the play all written. It's just changing the characters. Speaking of characters, Iran is said to be another rival. Of course, they're bitter rivals with our buddies in Saudi Arabia as to who's most politically powerful in their region, the Middle East, West okay. Asia. But what, what about Iran? Well, Iran, you know, Iran to me, and again, Iran is a, is, is a, a, is a minor regional power uh, in, in, in the Middle East. Uh, used to be the great Persian Empire, you know, used to be a very powerful empire, and they, they still have memories of, of their greatness. Uh-huh. But again, to get back to what you were saying at the very beginning of our interview, uh, you know, the Persian Empire used to be the exceptional uh, uh, uh-huh. superpower. Uh, and look at them now. I mean, we could learn from Iran uh, that uh, there's nothing inevitable about the continued power and and influence of, of the American Empire. So... <laughs> So Iran, Iran has no uh, nuclear weapons. Right. I mean, they have a nuclear program. Uh, you know, they 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 bear close watching, uh, but I don't see them as any sort of serious uh, threat. Yeah. In fact, as you know, it was a, our invasion of Iraq and the fiasco that followed that made Iran more powerful. Of course. So if any country has helped Iran to grow in power over the last 20 years. It's been the good old USA. Well, like we did with Cuba, I, I do think they're, you know, defining themselves. Their whole identity was in standing up to the U.S. Could the government have changed down there and become more democratic without that? Probably. I tend to think so. And I do find it interesting, you know, Cuba, there was the, in 1960 election, uh, the Democratic candidate, Senator Kennedy, came up with the phrase missile gap and used it in the debate with uh, Vice President Nixon. The point was to right. look, look tougher. He had to look tougher. Today, we have what you call threat inflation. What is that? And what about that? Uh, how well, you know, the phrase missile gap worked then and, you know, stuff like that maybe working now. Real simplistic reductionist stuff. Yeah, it's it, and and always uh, this is the kind of stuff that scares me because um, because what happens is with with respect to Ukraine, for example, Mm -hmm. when when Biden when when President Biden gave his uh, press conference uh, and he kind of fumbled through it as he does, 
And he said something worse to the effect that, well, if, if the Russians made a minor incursion into Ukraine, you know, not a full invasion, uh, you know, maybe we could sort of live with that. Uh, and immediately, you know, the Republicans jumped on that uh, and, and, and basically said, oh, my God, you know, President Biden just gave permission to Russia, you know, to invade and occupy Ukraine. Uh, and so it's 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 our domestic politics where one side, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, they both do it, uh, accuses the other side of of, of being weak. Right. right. Uh, and, and this is exactly as you said, it, you know, JFK Kennedy was a Democrat running against a Republican and who invented this this missile gap right. to 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 cast doubt on on what, uh, you know, Nixon. And in his Cold War uh, bona fides, which was ridiculous. I mean, there was no no one was more uh, radical in their Cold War uh, credentials than, than Richard Nixon. <laughs> um, and, and it sold. So, it sold. It, it it hit a nerve. You know, I'm sure they did. Once again, focus groups, and they found missile gap. Hey, whoa, that really connects with people. And uh, I wonder also about. Uh, the F-35 fighter. I wonder, what's the imagined purpose and the actual reality? And maybe, maybe, could it be that we could learn from that? Yeah, oh my goodness. Um, you know, I was I was in the Air Force when the F-35 was on the on the drawing board. Mm -hmm. You know, it's supposed to be a, a sort of like F-150 kind of pickup. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's supposed to be a, a, a really, you know, fairly inexpensive, uh, jack of all trades uh, weapon system, uh, and then the Air Force chief of staff recently compared it to a Ferrari uh, because it's so expensive and, and always in the shop. Uh, so it's it's like, what happened? How did my F one fifty pickup become a Ferrari? Uh, yeah, it, it's it's it points to the the way the military industrial complex works. Uh, that that um, you know it's all about. That's not all about, but there's a lot of greed, a lot of cashing in money, and 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 we end up with weapon systems that are often, you know, far, you know, you know, tankers that can't refuel jets. We got navy ships that that even the navy, the uh, littoral um, combat ships, are they nicknamed little crappy ships? <laughs> uh, and, and they actually use that. They they use that nickname in the military, so you know things are bad. Uh, so. Uh, we could do so much better, uh, and and uh, uh, and uh, so. Um, um, well, it's profitable. It's profitable. You know, let's face it. They yeah. it, they don't need to actually do anything. You know, just have. You're right. You know, need, you know. First, you have a weapon system that that breaks down. Then you can make more money fixing it. Right. Right. Well, and, <laughs> and there've been so many cases where it's been obvious that force isn't working. So what do you do? More force. <laughs> it just right. <laughs> uh, it's amazing. It's really interesting to me that. And one of the things that I've learned in politics that the only things, there's only two things really that move people in politics: fear, and reassurance. And you argue that quote: "We must walk ever so boldly out of tunnels built by fear and greed, and never return to them." You were actually in a tunnel under that gra uh, granite. What happened to that movement? As, as you ask, why is it so hard to give peace a chance in America? Why is the peace option never one of all the 
options on the table picture. You know, say we got all options on the table. Well, you don't have peace on there. You say there are a number of identifiable obstacles. Please tell us about them. Oh, yeah. Um, well, yeah, as, as, as we've been talking about, uh, you know, part of it is our, our, our culture. Our culture is kind of uh, suffused with uh, violence. Obviously, we have an extensive military industrial congressional complex. Uh, we only see one side of the question on the media. Uh, our, our, you know, the militarism in the United States is a bipartisan pursuit. Uh, and, you know, I could go on, but you, you bring me back to my time in Cheyenne Mountain. When I really did walk out of that long, damp, uh, cold tunnel yeah. of Cheyenne Mountain, and you would walk out, and you would, as you walked out the tunnel, you would, you would come out, uh, to, you know, into the parking lots that overlooked the city of Colorado Springs at, at your feet. Uh, and it was always kind of like a, uh, uh, I, I don't want to say not a eureka moment, but uh -huh. kind of like you took a, kind of like a deep breath of fresh air and you were like, ah, boy, it's just such a relief to be out from under that fear, so to speak, that fear of a nuclear war and back out into fresh air. And, and I think, you know, maybe, you know, metaphorically speaking, you know, or you know, this is, this is, this is what we need to do. We need to get out from under this, this, these, these tunnels of fear that, that, that have been built for us. And we need to get out into uh, uh, just a totally different vision of, of what our world is, 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 is all about. And, and it's like you said, uh, we need to get away from fear and, and into a world of, 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 uh, uh, of reassurance. Yeah. Uh, we really need as a people to have a, a reawakening of the American, uh, of, of the American spirit. It brings me back to Abraham Lincoln and what he said at the end of, of his second inaugural address. We need to make a just and lasting peace mm. with ourselves and with all nations. That's the kind of vision we need to return to. And I think uh, John Kennedy was speaking to that as well on that uh, little known but extremely important June 10th, 1963, about, uh, about peace. I, I think my guess is, not to be conspiratorial, but I think that's why he had to be killed. Uh, and of course, I think the greatest actual danger to America is not Russia or China. One could argue that it's far right. The powerful forces determined to end a Republican form of government and replace it with a religious nationalism. They are the strongest backers, for example, of the state of Israel, not because they're sympathetic uh, to Israel, but because they see that as the place for rapture, the start of Armageddon. Any idea of their influence on this new hotter Cold War? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, the Christ, Christian nationalism is definitely a concern, uh, mainly because of the power of their convictions. Yeah. You know, I, I think they're a, I think they're a, they're a minority, uh, but you know, I, I think from from what I know, from what I know, that their influence in the military is is growing, and mm. I can't give you specifics. I can't give you specifics right. because I've I've been out of the military for. 16 years nice. but from what i've heard uh it, it's it's definitely the case where where these kind of movements uh are growing in 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 power and and influence and oh. that's something we do need to be on guard against yeah well 
as you know, it took a lot of heavy lifting to stop the Vietnam War. Do you see any signs of hope? Or are we just too exhausted by COVID to do anything? Do you see any signs of hope? What, what might be realistically possible ahead? I think so. I, I, I think, strangely enough, uh, what what gives me hope a little bit is, again, you know, Trump's me- the, how Trump's message resonated in uh-huh. 2015, 2016. Uh, and how how many people, when you when you scratch underneath the surface, you know how many people who are actually are really uh, against war and want yes. to see a different America? Like my my brother-in-law, you know, he served in in the Vietnam War. He's he's much more conservative than I am. He's he's a he's a Fox News person. Mm. Uh, but when the Iraq War came along in 2003, you know, he was against it. Oh. He was against the Iraq War. He's been against the the Afghan war. You know, I, I think we need to find a way to make common cause. We need to leave behind these these blue and red ideas, this left right idea. We need to come together together as Americans, uh, and we need to come back to again the, the the vision of people like Lincoln and and JFK and Eisenhower yep. and Martin Luther King. I mean, it's this American vision is there. We just need to recapture it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Uh, uh, William Astori uh, is writer, regular writer for Tom Dispatch, and his personal blog is Bracing Views. Thank you so much today. Very informative and got some degree of hope. We like that. Thanks so much. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Bert. It's always, always a pleasure. Thank you. Killing continues and there but for the grave.